Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. All right. Hey, Solar Warrior, welcome back. Now, if you're listening in order, you are now queuing up episode two of our two-part series with the three co-founders of Tradewind and Savion, Rob Freeman, Jeff Coventry, and Matt Gilhausen. If you haven't listened to episode one, I really would encourage you to go listen to it as the conversation that we're going to continue today picks up where we left off. We talked a lot about their founding story and how they grew the company, got it funded, put a team together. And in this second part, we're going to talk about major inflection points for the business, how they came up with the business models, the innovation of their team. Selling Tradewind, beginning Savion, uh, funding and selling Savion. There are many, many, many lessons learned and the things that they take with them as they now are moving into another part of their career. If you are completely lost, well, you should listen to episode one. I would encourage you to go cue that one up right now. Uh, this is part two as we discuss how these gentlemen grew and sold not one but two businesses from virtually the same uh, platform in middle america first starting out with wind then moving into solar and storage and beyond it's such a good conversation and i do hope that you enjoy it i hope you'll also subscribe to the show as that'll make sure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this so many deep dives like the ones we recently did two parts with George Hirschman of Solve and James Warden, the founder of Selectria Corporation. So many other conversations as well that you may have missed because you didn't know that Suncast existed. Well, there's more than 485 additional clean energy founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. Go check it out. And now let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, with this part two of our powerful and in-depth conversation with founders of Tradewind and Savion here on Suncast. Over what has become two decades of you all working together, there must be many inflection points that when you look back, you think about them being critical milestones, critical decision factors. You've discussed a few here already. And Rob, you alluded earlier to the early teens, kind of 2012 timeframe being a critical moment, as it were, leading up to the asset sale of the business in 2019. I'd love it if you could talk about some of the major inflection points that as the three of you have reflected back on what made Tradewind and and following Tradewind Savion successful, where were those in key inflection points? Yeah, I guess I can um, I can try to just hit a few of them, and then and then with Matt's and Jeff's help here, we can we can drill down a little bit. So we talked about the the team and building the team and and kind of how that went. I think we made a um, we made a decision to build out significant resources, people resources, and software processes 
all these kind of things that really ended up resulting in a, really a very sophisticated, a very sophisticated, an extremely sophisticated business or the way that we approached development. And some of that I would say is I would credit Matt and his penchant for a lot of that kind of stuff is, you know, sort of reflecting his, his leadership of, of the development team. But yeah, I, you know, I think that was a key decision. So you look around and you see developers that uh, there's different, there's different business models essentially, right? So we were a flip model as a business. And so we were flipping out of projects at or before start of construction, essentially. We made a very conscious decision to build what became the top, I think, most recognized GIS department in the industry. We had a very big, sophisticated real estate department. We had a very big, sophisticated transmission department, you know, et cetera. And, and I think, you know, in, in, in business terms, it, all of that took a significant investment of capital and, and a certain degree of, you know, sort of a leap of faith that all of those things that we were, we were spending money and time on would, in the end, help us to be more successful, help us to be uh, right more often than we were wrong on on, uh, you know, risk decisions that we were making, you know, siting decisions and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so I would, I'd say that was a, that was a big sort of strategic decision and it ended up resulting in a, in a pretty large team with a pretty big overhead with a big overhead, you got to get a lot of stuff done. And so, you know, I'm not sure what came first, the chicken or the egg here, but, but we evolved into a business that needed to get 500 to a thousand plus megawatts done a year in order to sort of feed the beast. But then certainly we we believed, and I think, you know, sort of the track record proves this out, that that a lot of those investments that we made improved our success. We had a very, very high success rate with our projects. So that's one that I would throw out. The other thing that to me is probably the most critical, probably decision that we made. And you can always second guess yourselves on 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 partnering decisions, but you know, we as as we said, we partnered with an L in 06 and we were in that partnership until the sale in 2019, uh, which is a very long time. And I think, you know, part of what defined that partnership uh, success, which it clearly was, is the fact that we partnered with a strategic. Can you define strategic for people who maybe don't understand strategic? Just give it like make one or two minutes on what a strategic is for somebody who maybe hasn't grokked that yet. Yeah, well, so I guess, well, my, my definition would just simply be that, that Anel is as a, as a strategic, as a company that is in the business of mm-hmm. of build building owning and operating power right. plants all over the world and it's a company with a 100 you know 120 year history uh regulated operations non-regulated operations and so they're very they're very very deep in all aspects of what it takes to to um build build and operate power plants and of all different technologies is it fair to say a strategic is someone who whether or not it culminates in that is a, is a potential or likely acquiring partner, somebody who could, you could send you, you basically are, you're building stuff that they know how to own and operate. Yeah. And, and that's what I, this, this ultimately gets to is I, I think that that ended up being um, a, a really good thing for us. You know, Jeff and I can speak to the experience uh, with Savion that was, that was an offshoot of Tradewind ultimately uh, being owned by a, a financial you know, more of a financial type. And, and of course, there's lots of, and this is not to say that they aren't and can't be successful, but I, I, I do, I don't mind saying that, I guess my, my personal view is, is, is that strategics have a significant advantage as a partnership with Anel, where I think we're, 
we're able to to really leverage a lot of those advantages to our collective success and there's you know it's it's like talking about a you know a marriage you know you know that you've been in for for 20 years that's not to say that there weren't really hard times and frustrations and and a lot of 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 um sort of mismatch around you know strategy and all kinds of things that we had to fight through and and keep in mind that Anel is an Italian company and so we were also dealing with essentially an Italian culture uh, with a U.S. company, and and so it was it was very very. Were you hard. the first strategic for uh, investment for Anel into the USA? No, so they uh, they actually had a an investment in Podoma. Um, well, no, sorry, actually Podoma came after us. Well, they started out by buying a hydro business, and then I guess we we were their first investment in on the wind side, and then we became. We became, we became there, and then they made another couple of, of those types of investments, but Tradewind became their, their, their U.S. platform. Uh, we became the biggest. But, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I was just going to say for all the frustrations, and, and Matt and Jeff can jump in here, but I think now, you know, looking back on it, I, 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 I think we would all have to say that, that Anel was able to take risks and manage risks that, that was to really to the collective benefit of the partnership that, are not easy things to, to under, they're not risks that are easy to understand and they're not risks that are easy to take. And I think together we were, we were good at it. You know, we, we had a very successful partnership. And so you can't talk about trade win and not talk about that partnership. Development is a, is a really unique business. And it, it's, you, you find this out when you try to try to value it. <laughs> like all the, all the normal valuation models kind of break down, right? There's no like, cash flow that you're trying to, you know, forecast in the future or, you know, kind of uh, multiple on earnings and those kind of things. It's, it's this business that you're placing a whole bunch of calculated bets on the future based on a certain thesis about markets and about um, locations and about behavior in the markets and about regulatory decisions and all this kind of stuff. And the decisions you make there are not like most like a lot of business decisions that are based on more known factors that you can kind of do risk assessments on or, you know, black shells models or whatever, right, to kind of assess your risk. So the value of strategic investment, as opposed to purely financial, you know, parties that are putting money into a business just because they want to make money out of the business and don't really know that industry, strategics the right ones understand the development game and can know, are willing to place, make decisions often in the multiples of millions of dollars on things that are unknown and unknowable, right? So, and that's the difference between, you know, uncertainty and risk, right? There's, <laughs> there's things that are somewhat knowable, but are uncertain. There's things that are just not knowable. And in development, things are not knowable, uh, but you have to believe in the strategy and you got to be willing to say, you know what, we'll, we'll put millions of dollars down on this decision because we, we like our thesis. And we've got enough bets spread across a lot of different scenarios that we think enough of these will pan out. A lot of businesses struggle to, to make that decision and make that, those kind of decisions. They don't understand that kind of portfolio strategy of, of you know, placing bets and, and that kind of thing. So yeah, Enel was particularly strong, I think, on that. They placed some really big bets with us. They invested in the downturn of the market right through the great financial crisis for years. They, we beefed up the portfolio. 
when others were, you know, probably a little bit more scared about the market and placed some big bets on some transmission strategies that we came up with that, you know, were, were very successful. Uh, so things like that, I think, are, are key. I mean, you see kind of fundamentally over, over the many years together, we've seen essentially two business models. One is very small shop, which could be anywhere from two or three people to 20. Um, and by definition, then smaller portfolios, more concentrated effort in or effort or focus on a more concentrated market. Um, and, and we can all think of many examples of that. And, and there's, you know, there, there's a lot of guys, uh, founders that have, have done well, businesses that have done well with that model. I'm not sure there was any particular moment where we woke up one day necessarily and said, hey, we want to be big and we want to be in all the markets. It just sort of seemed to happen. <laughs> it could, you know, it's creep. But we did ultimately conclude that this portfolio kind of theory that, that Jeff is touching on, I mean, because there's a lot of binary risk in these projects and we were uncomfortable with, with heavy concentration in a market where if two or three things went wrong for you, you could be out of business. We, we started moving pretty aggressively to being in several SBP, MISO, PJM, ERCOT, Southeast, and in, in multiple markets that were ripe, you know, they were clearly going to grow. And then we were even, even sort of diversifying within inside states so that very consciously, if, if we guessed wrong and something, you know, a particular project that we thought was going to do well didn't, we were placing bets in other areas, and and I think that uh, it's a much more expensive business to be in. You know, we ultimately raised hundreds of millions of dollars at Tradewind, uh, so very large scale, you know, one of the biggest in the industry. But the numbers worked. It's just it, it is a very different it's a very di- different business model. One thing I guess it just popped into my mind, and I want to mention that that illustrates the the innovativeness of the team that we built um, is that the company was recognized by AWEA. We actually won one year, we, you know, each year in those days, the American Wind Energy Association would, would give or, or, or sort of designate one transaction as the top transaction in the industry for the year. It's kind of a big deal. So it was the Commercial Transaction Award. So Tradewind won that award one year for exporting power out of Oklahoma into the Southeast putting together the multiple transmission links uh, that was necessary to do that. And I think we were, I don't know, guys, I mean, we were maybe the first company to do that. Uh, so it, it was highly innovative. Uh, there was a lot of risks that we were managing there that, that, that people hadn't managed before. I, you know, and, and, and it was a super interesting transaction. We ended up doing, I think, three of those. Uh, it led to a bit of a stampede, I think, where there were, you know, others in the industry saw it happen, and then they were trying to do a lot of the same kind of stuff. But I guess to tie the loop around into the strategic, I mean, that was a, that was a deal that Anel supported. And I, I think it took somebody like Anel to, to be able to get their head around that transaction and support that transaction and the risks that were embedded in it uh, that, that a lot of players would, I think, struggle with. The, the risk profile of the business changed radically from, you know, day one to, to, the, to the time we sold. I mean, it went from extremely binary if this project if this one project fails we fail right sort of a scenario to um, as we grew and invested we got more and more diversified and our risk profile i think started to go down it started to morph 
maybe it didn't go down, but we had enough assets that we were getting uh, more volume. Just it, it became easier in some respects, but more. You look at the industry from the time we started to when we sold the business, um, the evolution of the RTOs, right? And particularly here in the Midwest, um, LMPs and, you know, all of the, um, the CNI activity, um, the, the, the complexities on the transactional side, you know, that made, that made the business that kind of shifted the risk. Um, I think in many respects to the projects, um, operationally, um, and some, in some cases, um, some of the, the off takers and participants in the projects. Um, and then you had obviously just the super saturation of renewables on, you know, on the grid, creating an evolution of the, just the interconnection process, uh, which Jeff, Jeff, you know, had ultimate responsibility for, but the, the amount of time and effort we spent trying to uh, game theory these uh, what what our what's our competition going to do? We needed to know our competition better than we knew ourselves, or equally as well, to be able to try to make some sort of an assumption on what party X, Y, and Z is going to do based on the merits of their project against ours. Um, in order to decide, do we stay in the the game? Do we stay in the queue or not? Whether it's a transmission queue or interconnection queue, you know that same. Kind of game theory required us to really know, and that's what Rob was talking about leveraging, you know, the GIS um, and technology. Um, it took a massive amount of of brain power and IT um, and technology that we developed to try to keep some sort of make some sort of uh, clear, relatively clear decision or direction out of what's otherwise looks like chaos. Maybe making it a little bit over you know, overdramatic, but yeah, I mean, with, with several, you know, several hundred projects, both winds, you know, wind, solar, um, storage, um, even a little bit of gas across 25 plus states and, you know, multiple RTOs, each with its own nuanced process. You know, when we first started, it was literally, you file an interconnection request and they study it and, you know, you get an off taker and you go build a project if there was enough capacity on the wire physically. And it just isn't that way anymore. Um, so it, it, the risk have changed over the years, but uh, man, it's so much more complex now than it was, uh, which is super exciting to have been part of the industry over over that the last two decades. You know, to that end, you guys have pioneered not just how wind was developed, but uh, as well how the overall renewable energy mix at these various uh, in these various uh, markets evolved from wind to solar to blending different types of uh, power market generation assets. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the time. It's going to be a bit of a time lapse here, but. From let's call it 2010, you guys are finally seeing success. You're finally, you've got your first project. You're waiting for your second project, uh, maybe closing on the second project now. How did the business environment evolve between 2010 and 2019 that culminated in exiting Tradewind? And how did that business evolve, the sort of the macro energy market evolve, evolution influence decisions around the products 
that you developed and the way you financed them? I know that's a broad question, but I feel like between the three of you, you'll, you'll come up with the right answer. Some of the issues revolved around Anel feeling, starting to become a little saturated in STP and wanting to, um, to push us into different markets just from a business, fundamental business perspective. Every time we would look um, outside of the Midwest, you, you know, you look, the markets get harder and harder to develop in. There's, you know, many, many more headwinds. And so we'd, we'd go, we'd go take a look uh, in PJ, PJM and go, let's go back, to, let's go back home where it's a little, you know, the, the numbers, the risk reward is better, but that ultimately we did end up taking both on the, the solar and, and wind side some pretty big leaps into markets that we had not been in. And I think that that stretched the team in a bunch of respects, but I think at the end of the day, it was, it was the right thing to do. Um, at, at the same time, we started to see build transfers start to become a really big component of the business. Excel, Mid-American, you know, so many of these utilities were wanting to own and operate. They wanted um, wanted us to do build transfers, which have a you know, have a whole different risk profile. Lots of opportunity there, but as that as that market started to develop, um, it wasn't really what you know. Anel didn't want to build things for other people; they wanted to own and operate. So it, that and that, when you talk about what the listeners might you know takeaways from that, it's you know you gotta. We needed a partner, and as Rob said earlier, Anel is. They were, they've been a, they were a great partner and we wouldn't be here without them. Um, but there were many, many inflection points along the way where they wanted one thing and we wanted another. And that push pull was omnipresent between Anel and Tradewind. We got a lot done and we created a bunch of value. But um, I think at the end of the day, the one of the big things that pushed the ultimate transaction with Anel was um, was just that evolution of the the build transfer um, side of the industry and and we had so many assets that fit that description that we just we it, it kind of got us to a point where we needed to do something sooner rather than later to not flush a massive amount of value in these assets that were otherwise stranded unless they unless they were built you know and sold to the utilities. Well, I think the, uh, the, the the solar, this the whole solar thing is part of that story too, which I think is part of what you were alluding, alluding to, Nico. But we can fairly say that we were part of of really launching the the commercial wind energy business in the U.S. You know, given our start date. But in 2012, that's that's when we that's when we jumped into developing solar projects, and we were really starting to hit stride with the wind thing then. So there, you know, there might might have been a question as to well, why why do we need to do solar wind? You know, wind's going great. It looked like kind of the next wave that was coming. And frankly, it was not an easy conversation internally or with our, uh, with Anel, you know, our board. Fortunately, we did, we did start, you know, developing those projects. It ended up being the right call. And it was kind of a, a slow, we had a very small team focused on solar, a, you know, a team of three, four or five people. Over time, they were pulling more and more from the organization uh, but it, it was kind of a long play in between 2012 and 2019. You know, we built a portfolio of, you know, what guys, I mean, 
four or five thousand megawatts probably worth of solar projects and and they were great quality projects in fact the guy that that was our primary person citing wind projects as the business expanded then shifted over and started leading the efforts to cite our solar projects and and he he's good at it and so when we got to 2019 we you know we decided we made the decision to to sell the business and and I, I don't know if this has come out yet but it ended up being split up into three three pieces so Anel bought about half of the wind projects uh, picking up on what what Matt was saying they bought the wind projects that most closely fit their strategy uh, which was they they wanted to you know own projects uh, themselves and operate projects about half of the wind pro- business was sold to Invenergy and then the entire solar portfolio and what we had at that point of of storage was sold to Macquarie. And I, you know, I think I, there was a lot of a lot of factors that led to the decision to to sell in 2019. But but the solar thing was a piece of that because it had gotten bigger and bigger, and it was a bigger drain on the company. And at that at that moment in time, uh, I would say it was hopefully this is the correct way to say it. I, I would say it was non strategic for an L. Now that's not true today. I haven't really tracked Anel and 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 the, and the trade wind things since they bought since they bought their piece. But they're you know they're clearly very aggressively developing solar projects and a bunch of stuff in the U.S. now. So I think that changed pretty quickly after that. But it was non-strategic, and some of the wind assets didn't really fit their strategy. Um, and then there's always there's always internal pol- you know partnership stuff going on that it that resulted in it just being the right moment you know, for the company to be split up basically. And, and then uh, Jeff and I went with the solar business, which became Savion, yeah. uh, which was a new, it was a new company and it was owned by Macquarie. And then Matt stayed behind it with Tradewind and L for a, a fairly short period of time. And then he's moved on to some other entrepreneurial ventures uh, since then. The trade publication of Anel divesting solar to Macquarie had already sort of named the solar company as Savion. Was it already internally Savion uh, as a as a trade wind brand? No, we named it uh, basically commensurate with the transaction with Macquarie. Gotcha. Yeah, and it spun out. Yeah, and and, and just to be clear, we had 145 people at trade wind, and then 53 of those people went with Savion, wow. and then Anel picked up the rest. Hey, solar project owners and developers, are infrequent field checks in your operations and maintenance plan and oversight? Do you need proper insight? Well, let data drive your maintenance. Our friends over at 60 Hertz are in the cloud so that you spend less time on the ground and their app is a snap. 60 Hertz in your pocket will help bring solar to the socket. You can learn more about how 60 Hertz can help your operations and maintenance plan at mysuncast.com forward slash 60HERTZ. That's 60 Hertz. Have you been curious about utility scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built in DC to DC coupling, combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation, make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. Fast forward to the moment where it became clear I needed to get you guys on the show. You uh, sold it. You sold Savion uh, again. Just to, So 20 years or 18 years to, to build Tradewind into something that you could divest sort of personal equity and, and have uh, an entrepreneurial exit. 
uh, roughly two years, uh, give or take a few months later, you're able to fully divest of, or at least we'll, sorry, we'll say, we'll say, so take Savion to another level, uh, selling it from Macquarie to shell as a platform shell, notably having invested in a lot of platforms in around the world. Uh, we had Regan, uh, and the Silicon ranch team on a while ago to talk about shells strategy and, and sort of how they've invested in the U S I'd love to hear your thoughts uh, particularly you and Jeff now, as you mentioned, having gone on to Savion, uh, around the distinction coming out of Tradewind of what Savion's uh, mission was. Kind of what was it? What was your charter for Macquarie, and what, what did you set out to build that was somehow different or built upon what you started at Tradewind that that ultimately Shell uh, felt compelled to acquire. Well, a couple of really, you know, sort of obvious critical distinctions were in, in the case of Tradewind, we had the, the partnership with Enel and they were, for the most part, the market for our projects when we were flipping out of them. They were not buying the solar projects. So we already had a history of selling solar projects into the market, but they were buying almost all of the wind projects. So we had, we had transacted, we had sold a few, a handful of solar projects. At the time in 2019, that Macquarie bought that business, uh, but not very many. And in the case of Macquarie, as as, as the owner of Savion, we we were looking to sell 100% of the projects into the market. So there was no, we didn't have a sort of a built-in partnership, um, automatic, you know, sort of buyer. Macquarie did continue to invest heavily in the business, and we continued to build the portfolio. So. The company went from 53 employees day one to 130 in two years. And the portfolio went from 5,000 megawatts to 12,000 megawatts, plus another several thousand megawatts of storage. And so the business had grown dramatically. Uh, We were much more aggressively investing at that point in like PJM than we had previously. We were pursuing some some, um, reclaimed coal coal mining sites and, you know, doing some interesting stuff there. So there was, there was a lot of interesting stuff happening, but at the beginning of the business, I was CEO, Jeff was COO, same relationship. And we had the same team, you know, coming in and, you know, Jeff and I were, we were driving the business internally. We, so we were very much the architects were sort of building out the team in key areas, hiring more, you know, C-suite type people in, et cetera. We were continuing to develop, you know, a lot of the processes and systems that we had, the strategy, the market strategy, all that kind of stuff. But in the end, I don't think that we would say that it was an exercise in positioning it to sell it to Shell, right? That's, that's not the story. It was, it was really being positioned as a long-term play, an ownership play for Macquarie. And then, uh, there was a decision made by the Macquarie guys to run the process. There was a lot of interest and Shell ended up being the winner and the sale happened. I, I think it probably took all of us a little bit by, by surprise, but Jeff and I, we had moved into a, just a board advisory role uh, last year. And, uh, and now we've officially stepped, you know, we both stepped down off the board at this point. One of the interesting things that I'll, I'll make as a random correlation for those who are uh, sort of Suncast listener fans who've listened back to at least the Silicon Ranch interview where now both platforms sit under shell. You guys, I'm a Carolina boy and I track, you know, the bird's eye and Ecoplexus and Savion and Silicon Ranch all building and Cypress, of course, building large projects in my home state of South Carolina. What's odd for me or, or perhaps interesting and insightful is 
how Shell now owns like more than 50% of the South Carolina built uh, environment for photovoltaics, which is kind of remarkable just through the portfolio acquisitions they've made. Jeff, I wonder from an operations perspective, how did the narrative around some of these up and coming markets evolve and also around technology, namely storage? You guys added a lot of storage capacity to your portfolio with the Tradewind investment and the Macquarie acquisition. Can you talk a bit about the evolution of the business model from a technology perspective and a markets perspective? Yeah, one of the things that was really helpful and it was deliberate on our part in the in the transaction with Enel to uh, spin out the solar and storage business is we all recognized it was it was kind of untapped value there, and so we we wanted to see it monetized in the transaction um, when we sold Tradewind, uh, which was which was successful, and that's when Macquarie came in. Part of that was the ability to take care of the team. We were able to go through that transaction with everybody keeping jobs on one of the two uh, platforms. And part of that was also ensuring a kind of duplication, if you will, of, of back office systems and, and capabilities. We were really fortunate with the Tradewind team is that we had, we kind of had bench strength across the board within the, the, the team that we had there. So in almost every department, there was a department head, but there was like a lieutenant who was just about as good or, you know, in some cases as good as the ones that were, were there or, or could be groomed into those roles. And so when we, we spun off this, you know, 50-something people out of uh, Tradewind into Savion, almost from day one, we had all the bases covered with some really talented people, uh, while Enel also kept on the Tradewind side really talented people. And so we, we kind of hit the ground running in one sense, but we, we also had some gaps and we had some work to do to stand up. Uh, the technology, back office technology, we were able to share that basically. So we, we uh, negotiated rights for both parties to own the IP and to kind of carry on independently and those kind of things. So a lot of work went into making sure this, this could actually happen and the business could stand up and, and kind of go. From there, it was really the, the team just just owning now that they're finally you know, kind of free to be a solar storage team, which was never fully the case inside Tradewind. Um, at Tradewind, solar and especially storage was always kind of second, third fiddle to wind because wind was just the bed and broader uh, of the company brought in the bulk of the revenues, had, you know, most of the, the, the time uh, spent on it uh, across the team. So now that the this group, was just dedicated to that one technology, they could really just be freed up to say, what should we be doing? Where's the money going? What team members do we need? Just focused on us and not having to share and you know those kind of things. We helped bring in some of the key gaps, but uh, the core team that we brought over just really went to town on, on market strategy, did a really thorough assessment of the, the US market, where they wanted to be, uh, working closely with Macquarie and kind of getting their buy-in and, and input. But for the most part, I think they'd listen to the team. And I think we're in something like 25 states in in developing solar. Um, storage was we were primarily, st- the primary strategy there was co-location. Uh, but we also began to explore standalone storage markets, uh, particularly in New York, and, and kind of launch, launch that at the same time. Probably fair to say storage never quite 
got as much mind share um, and and um, funding for its development as solar because it's it's still kind of embryonic and I think honestly a lot of those market dynamics are still getting worked out uh, in terms of how to make money in the in the storage space so there's a lot of kind of questions there that were not there with solar where we could just you know go and get deals done and and, and grow so sounds like storage as is true on lots of platforms right now is the is the solar to trade wind right now for for Savion <laughs> right, so right. And, uh, I would I would expect maybe not at this venture at this juncture um, although it wouldn't surprise me that there'd be a storage spin out from shell of the <laughs> former Savion team uh, who knows there's a fair amount of kind of wishful thinking, I think, on the storage side because the market structure just isn't there for those contracts the same way it is for a PPA on energy. And so, you know, you can look at you can look at a market and say, "Hey, look, the spread's really good here, and you can make money." And but you know, you go to finance and it's like, "Well, how long is that going to be there? Right, twenty years or right. mm. well, two? Is it durable? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's a lot of it's built on arbitrage. Is that arbitrage durable, um, or is it going to be backfilled with some other technology? That's fascinating." Gentlemen, this is a true treasure trove of insight to how a company that is respected and revered by many, uh, certainly in the wind and uh, and again on the solar side of utility scale side of the business as pioneers, as you know, leaders in the industry. It's always instructive for us to be able to hear from the founders of, of how you thought through the complex problems and challenges we all face as business owners As we wrap the conversation, I'd be remiss to overlook that each of you, I presume, have your own perspective and takeaway, having now built a company that has had massive success in the marketplace. I'd love to hear one by one, if you would, maybe one or two things that you would communicate or or for you that, that consist as key takeaways from the building of and having an entrepreneurial exit within uh, a renewable power company that you think someone listening who is considering that sort of opportunity themselves might benefit from. We'll start with you, Matt, and we'll work our way around to Rob. So Matt, Jeff, Rob. I guess I keep it pretty high level. I mean, I think you got to have a, a decent idea. You got to have something that is a good enough uh, idea that at least you're passionate, extremely passionate about it. I think having a team around you makes all the difference. And and that may be a couple of people. It may be a larger team, but you can't do any of this alone. You got to have a team, pick your partners. Well, I I think it's super important that, you know, for me, I, I I know I couldn't have done my part by myself. I mean, I needed these guys um, to, to have any chance of being as successful as as I've been personally and, and as a company. Um, So, Having those partners, um, it's a it's a marriage um, of sorts, and it require. And we had our ups and downs personally, and we had some serious throwdowns. I mean, there were there were moments, <laughs> yeah. I mean, moments where I'm, I know these guys regretted uh, at least momentarily uh, knowing me. But you know, at the end of the day, um, we were we got through it, and we're. I, I know this today because I'm, you know, I'm doing, I've been doing some other things, working with other teams and trying to mentor and, you know, do some strategic planning and trying to build, build teams. And um, it's hard to do. Sometimes you don't even get to pick your team. It kind of, you know, these guys fell into my life and we, we made it work and it was, 
we were better for it. So team partners, um, passion, and, you know, I think um, staying power is super important. And that's all tied into having the team and the support and the passion and a decent idea. But you got to stay, you got to be able to stay the course because none of this stuff happens overnight. It just takes, it's going to take, be harder than you ever thought. It's going to take more, more time than you ever imagined. Um, But I think, you know, I can't think of doing anything else. And in fact, I, you know, I find myself still trying to recreate some of it now. It's like, I, I miss, I miss some of, I miss some of the deals and I miss some of the camaraderie and the, the teamwork and the problem solving. So I'm, I'm doing some of that just at a smaller scale. So, and, and I'm, I'm hopeful that these guys can work. I uh, hopefully I'll get to work with them again. And, you know, I would love to see the three of us continue to help other young entrepreneurs you know, and I know some, I know we've all been talking to folks along the way. We get calls from people, you know, starting new businesses and, and you, at least I speak for myself. I, you know, I, I get excited about, about it for them and I want to help them and I want to like coach them and stuff. Um, so they don't have to learn all the hard lessons we learned. Maybe they can, they can get a few tidbits from us and save themselves. They're going to have the, it's going to be hard no matter what, but just a few, a few pointers here and there can really help from people that have been through it. Um, so I'm going to try to keep doing that to some degree and pay it forward. You know, I'd, I'd have to just, you know, give a shout out to my, my partners here um, for sure that this was a unique thing. It was special. I've, you know, worked in other places, had other bosses being part of other startups. Um, nothing compares remotely to, to this experience. And, and it, it speaks a lot to to the three of us, I think, and and just the personalities, the commitment to each other, the respect for each other, uh, the complementary skills. So, I, I, to me, it's you know, can you can you teach that? Um, can you can you pass that on? Um, as Matt said, some of that was you know maybe dumb luck that we just kind of stumbled on each other, but. Uh, there's something special about being in a in a team environment from a leadership perspective. Every other experience I've had, there was the boss. Uh, sometimes the boss was a jerk. Sometimes they just weren't that great. But being in this this kind of environment where you're you're sharing decisions, you're doing everything with consensus, and and that's a motto that we pushed down the organization as well. It was, you know, we'd sit in meetings with with all out key people and some junior people. And it was like, everyone's got a voice and we're going to leave this, this meeting room with a consensus, not with someone mandating an answer. So that, that style, that approach was, was I think really special and made, made this what it was. The commitment to people, it's something everyone says. In my experience, few actually do it. It's kind of like the HR department says the right words, but if it's if it's not coming from the top, it's not the same. And I think what we had, which was so special, was was this really genuine interest in in human lives and in people and the team that we were part of, the the families that were there. We'd spend time with with people outside the office. We'd do company trips and hang out together with spouses and sometimes kids. And um, people just got to know each other and liked each other. And 
to me, that's, you know, I'm a bit skeptical of the, you know, company is your family kind of thing because I, you know, family's supported <laughs> and companies don't replicate families, but companies can be be con- conducive to family environment. Um, and I think that's that's really key. On the kind of structuring investment side of it, I'd, I'd say one of the key things I would tell anyone is to be careful, thoughtful, and and broad thinking about how you're getting into structured relationship, uh, a business, a, an investment, a partnership, a joint venture, whatever, and think through scenarios and have, have others around you to help you like get past your blind spots and get creative because you don't know the future and you don't know what might come around that could benefit everybody there. Uh, and so create create structures that give room for flexible outcomes that could be rewarding. Uh, don't get too locked into just a single scenario that then if that, you know, the market shifts and suddenly you don't, you don't have a way to capture something uh, of, of potential, which I think we, we did a pretty good job of that. I, I give a lot of credit to Rob and in, in a lot of that structuring and, you know, probably some of it was just, you know, lucky the way things some things panned out as well, but um, I think there was clearly some structuring that went on that that paid off in terms of allowing for various outcomes. Um, some of it we just had to negotiate our way through because we we kind of were stuck with the the inner relationship. We had to just mutually agree to something, and and we got there. A couple of other things I'd hit would be we had a we had a kind of a don't tolerate jerks policy. And so I think being really careful about who you hire and then being very deliberate about dealing with, with you know, just call it the office jerks, <laughs> uh, don't, don't let it happen. They, they create so much trouble. Um, you got to just, just nip that in the bud wherever you can and kind of move on, um, deal, deal with it. But uh, I think that's, that's kind of a key thing in, in my book. And the last thing I'd say is from a, <laughs> whether you're raising money or you're investing, uh, this is something I learned from the VCs, but I'd probably even add to their uh, to their assessment here, which was everyone that puts a business and in pl- in plan in front of you expect the uh, the expenses to be twice as high and the revenues to be half as as much. And I'd, I'd probably throw on that the time frame to be three times as long and and probably increase those multiples. But I think that's pretty real. Uh, honestly, you just you just don't know enough when you start off to to get anything accurate. So don't don't ever believe the business plan, but believe the the big picture, but you know, get behind the people, get behind the strategy, get behind the fundamentals of the market. If you get if you got all those things there, then you got something to, you know, to play with. Fantastic advice. Thank you, Jeff. We'll bring it home with the imported third team member who ended up being the CEO of both Tradewind and Savion, Rob Freeman. Well, it, it's it's hard to add a whole lot to what these two guys just covered, um, but maybe to put a fine point on a couple couple of things, I, I do think when you think about the people that we attracted to the business in the early days, we think about the angel investors, we think about Anel, Macquarie. I mean that that whole ride. I mean, we we did have ultimately we had people placing trust in the three of us and betting on us, basically. And the word that comes to mind for me is trust. I, I guess it's I don't it's not something that we ever talked about or thought about. I think it's frankly just a reflection of our personalities, but we didn't 
we we never cut corners. You know, we never we just we never took shortcuts and that kind of stuff. And I, and I think the truth is, is I think we probably did a really great job of protecting the trust that people were uh, putting in us the whole way. I think we were probably just people that were always willing to make personal sacrifices, even business hard business decisions at times to honor the trust that people were putting in us. And, you know, in the end, I, you know, that that's just really powerful. And so it's, that, that is certainly a bit philosophical, but I've, I've also, I mean, I've got, I'm, I'm the oldest person on this call and I've worked in a lot of different environments and I've, I've, I've been appalled consistently in, in a lot of the big companies that I've worked in at, at how quick people are and, and sort of mindless they are about, about always sort of protecting and, and sort of living up to the trust that people are putting in you. And I think that can be pretty powerful. And, and that was kind of how we tried to set the tone for the culture in the business. Um, the other thing that I want to highlight, and this, this, was, this was something that I think people do, you know, probably do debate, you write books on and, and debate, you know, in, in terms of, you, you always hear uh, meetings, you know, spending times in meetings as being a complete waste of time. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's the, the bane of the existence of all businesses. I think I've heard Elon Musk, you know, you know, hammer his organization and people for meetings. And I think there's a flip side to that. And so our culture was, so I had coffee yesterday with a guy that's former Tradewind, former Savion, and now he's a founder of, of a renewables company. He's 30 years old and he's been with the two companies for about six years. And as a 30-year-old guy, he said, you know, he said, the thing that I still, I couldn't believe at the time and I still can't believe. And he said, I don't know if I'll ever experience anything quite like it again is how you guys basically provided a seat at the table for anyone and everyone. And it was a very welcoming feel. So no one was worried about speaking or offering up their ideas or challenging us and, and all those kind of things. And frankly, we spent just hundreds of thousands of hours sitting in meetings. Some of the people in the company didn't like it and they criticized it. I always felt pretty, pretty resolved that the very best, most creative, innovative ideas came from those sessions. And we had them every day. And the three of us were in just about all of them together. And honestly, I think if I were to say, you know, if you had to just put your finger on one thing that made that team really go and that ultimately resulted in great decisions around how to manage risk, it was because there was no one person or or few people who were saying, by God, this is how it's going to be, you know, do this. I make the decisions. This is the decision. It was an incredibly collaborative process. It was painful at times because it took a lot of patience uh, and a lot of willingness to listen to opinions, but it was probably the most effective approach to how to manage, as Jeff said, a business that was pretty unwieldy in a lot of ways. It's really, it's really critical for people to enjoy the ride. So, so often when people meet folks like us, so we're on the back ends of our career, and our story ultimately ended with a bang and it was, you know, it was successful and it was a big, it was a, it was a very successful financial outcome for everybody involved, you know, with, with a liquidity event around the sale of these two companies. But there was 18 years leading up 
16, 18 years leading up to all that. And frankly, the vast majority of that time was uncertain as to whether there was ever going to be a liquidity event. And the truth is, is that uh, in many, many, many of those years, frankly, none of us were making as much money as we could somewhere else. I can honestly say, and I know these two guys will chime in on this, but I can honestly say there were very few days, if any, in all those all that time for me that I didn't like my job. Uh, to the contrary, I loved it, and I actually enjoyed the ride. I loved the people. I loved the, the creative process, and I was perfectly okay with never having a big, uh, you know, a big liquidity event. It, it was not even. It was not something that any of us were even planning on. We really love the ride. So if you don't love the ride, you're you're in the wrong thing. You know, right, guys? Totally. Well said. Matt Gillenhausen, Jeff Coventry, and Rob Freeman are the three founders of Tradewind. Went on to spin out uh, Rob and Jeff, uh, the company Savion that we've discussed today, and have, as you've just heard, likely spawned dozens more businesses through the leadership, mentoring, and example that they set over two decades of building one of the notable pioneering companies in renewable energy, setting the course for a lot of folks to copycat or follow suit or learn from their mistakes and their successes. I want to compliment and acknowledge you guys for the wonderful work that you've done. And thank you so much for the true diamonds, the, the gems that you have shared with the Suncast audience and and the broader clean energy tribe that we all can count ourselves part of thank you for taking the time i really truly appreciate it all right solar warriors well as i said in the first part i really appreciate your persistence now you have doubled the effort and i am certain you were rewarded what is the thing that stands out to most for you in this episode i would love love to know it would you jump on linkedin and let me know how this landed for you. For me, it represents about eight months of trying to get in the door and grab these three gentlemen who are uh, no longer working day to day together. I'm grateful to Alex Koval for helping pull the strings and helping me make the intros via email. I'm really, really grateful to Jeff and Matt and Rob for the time that they gave from a schedule that is very busy and uh, and one in which their story didn't need to be told necessarily, but they gave it a shot. And I'm really grateful that they did. How about you? Would you go on LinkedIn and uh, leave me a comment in the post that we've made for this episode? I'd like to know what you are taking away from this uh, this insight into how the companies were formed and how they were sold and all that these guys learned in so doing. As I always say, if you're eager to keep learning, then you can head on over to mysuncast.com where we've listed the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion along with the social media links, book recommendations, and a bunch of research links that I dug up as I wanted to know more about these companies. If that's you, well, you're going to have a feast over there. So I'd encourage you to go check it out. And I want to thank once again, and finally, our sponsors who help make this content free to you. You can learn more about those sponsors at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also where you could learn how to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like this. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, solar warrior. It's half the battle.